And now we're live. Back at it. Again, it's been a, quite a hiatus, Larry. I know. It was nice while it lasted, but it's now we're back. It's been a while, <laughs> yeah. So we, we actually moved out of our other studio, as you guys could tell. Brand new set, all new design, um, and we're back at it. We're going to hit the ground running. And speaking of hitting the ground running, today we've got Mike Fish... Weicker. Fish Weicker. Got I it. Kn- I knew I would... It's a it's a very interesting last name, Fishweiker. Does that mean anything? Or it's actually it's a great question, and um, the best part of the name is that as hard as it is, nobody ever forgets it. So Definitely. I can meet someone at a trade show and not run into them till four years later, and they're like, "Yes, I remember you." <laughs> but it means fish cleaner in Polish. I, that's what I've been told. Okay. Because my father's maternal family is from Poland. Okay. Uh, but beyond that, I have no clue. Interesting. I know fish nothing cleaning. about fish cleaning. <laughs> <laughs> I eat fish sometimes, but yeah. sometimes I go fishing, but that's it. Okay. But what you do know is consulting. Yes. And that's why that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. You're in the medical slash software consulting. Get Help me get this right. I know, Larry, you guys know each other a little bit more than I do. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. So my focus is in the healthcare technology space, specifically with software that focuses on medical care and uh, aggregating and and making useful uh, data out of patient clinical data. Uh, That's what I focus on. Okay. And have you seen a a large uh, change or shift in, in technology? I mean, how long have you been doing this? So I started about 19 years ago. Uh, I would actually work full-time and go to college uh, twice a week at night. I went to a specific night program that was meant for people that work full-time so that I can get my bachelor's uh, degree while working at uh, MicroWise Technology. If only something like that existed nowadays where people can go to school at night. I mean, yeah, there is kind of like night. It's besides besides the point. I feel like it's not as common as it was before. It's okay. I mean, the. Um, I think the internet has a lot to do with it because now you can take <laughs> online classes and uh, that's yeah, starting to be yeah. more legitimate than it used to be. Yeah. You know? uh, the, so, I mean, I, I obviously know you from, uh, from the early days of MicroWise, and I wanted to get kind of an understanding of the history of the industry from at that point. What was, what was going on? What was MicroWise's like, agenda at that point from what you were doing in, in terms of your role and that involvement? Um, and then kind of con- converting over to like now in the present day. So what kind of shift over time? Uh, but at that point in your career, what was going on with like the industry? So that's a great question. First off, I want to just preface by saying I've always been tech savvy, but I'm not a software engineer. You know, I've, I was, in fact, uh, it started when I was uh, in elementary school. I had such bad handwriting. The teacher said to my parents, you should get them a laptop to take notes which was unprecedented at the time. Nobody ever thought of doing something like that, but they did. They got me, uh, I think it was, I forget what brand, maybe Acer or something. The point is I took it apart, put it back together, learned everything about Windows 3.1, and that's really where my love for software and computers began. Fast forward, uh, you know, many years, uh, and uh, by chance I met uh, with the president and founder of MicroWise Technology, 
uh, when he was doing a demonstration for somebody I was advising uh, for their physical therapy practice, and I really didn't know uh, much at all about medical software at the time. Uh, when I heard the word software, much like many other people, my mind would immediately think about like you know Best Buy or off-the-shelf software that mm. you would go to the store and buy. I mean, this is still in the days where you had to buy a copy of Microsoft Office, not download it. You know, keep in mind. Um, so, to me, software was something that was off, inherently off the shelf all the time. I didn't understand at the time before I met uh, this gentleman from Microwise that there was actually a market for software that wasn't off the shelf. It was very expensive. So that's where my first very basic understandings of healthcare software came into play. For somebody who's completely out of the game of software, can you explain what Microwise is? Yes. Um, do you want to take that? Because I mean, you you can take it right out. No it's clue. all you. <laughs> you spend you spend more times working there than I have, I have. So it's all you. Okay. So uh, Microwise technology uh, was a uh, New York, New Jersey based. Uh, value-added reseller for McKesson, which whether or not you've heard of them, uh, you know them because they are currently, I think, number 11 or 12 on the Fortune 100 list. Uh, in, in, you know, not in healthcare, in America. Uh, so they, they, they generate a lot of revenue. Anyways, they have software offerings for small to mid-size uh, physician practices that handle everything from billing uh, to also now electronic medical records and so on. So when, from the very first moment that I saw a, because there was no iPads, might I mind you then at the time, when I saw a tablet PC with a human body on it that you can tap and it spits out all these words, this 38-year-old female presents today with uh, blah, 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 and complains of the pain, blah, I, my reaction was, why is every doctor in the U.S. not using this today? You know, and this is in the year 2002. You know, I couldn't understand at that point how, as the most technologically advanced country in the world, our healthcare system, which is really the most important system as far as I saw it, wasn't, you know, at the top of this tech game. You know, it was shocking to me how many doctors didn't have anything, anything like this. They, st they still use traditional paper and pen for, for seeing patients. And that's where my curiosity came in. And very quickly, I said to myself, I want to get involved in this and do this for a living because I feel like it's a win-win. I'm helping patients get better care. I'm helping doctors have a better quality of life. I'm helping their staff go home happy and not be overworked. I mean, everybody's happy, you know? Obviously, you can also support a family doing it. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if, you're, if you're good at it. And I found out... Over the years, I was good at it, and it's not because I'm some sort of magic uh, super salesman. It's because I believed in the product I was selling, and that's key, you know, and paramount, by the way, to anybody out there who sells. If you don't really, truly believe firmly in what you sell, um, it's, it's not going to come naturally, and you're probably going to find a lot more challenges along the way than if you really do believe in what you're selling. And it wasn't just like a traditional product, right, that you were selling. You were completely changing the lifestyle of doctors from the way they handled patients coming in and out of the practice, like from the way they were being dealt uh, in terms of entering information and everything like that. It was a complete shift in, in the industry for them. So it, it was an amazing product, but also in the sense of like you were, 
you were in the middle of like a whole changing of industry for them. Right. And, and just to expound on that a little, because up until that point, like most patients, I really didn't understand much about the concept of why doctors are taking notes in the room. You know, I figured it's so they don't forget who you are. People don't realize that they get reimbursed by insurance companies based on how complex those notes are. In order for them, if they even see you for 45 minutes and they only write two sentences, they are not allowed to bill for a 45-minute visit. I mean, mm -hmm. they have to have specific levels of you know, documentation to attest to that visit. Mm -hmm. And if they get caught even on one instance of overbilling and not having supporting documentation, minimum $10,000 fine just for that one patient, one instance. Oh, wow. And so how how has that changed basically? So like is that is that still the case or like how is that transition to something else over time or like so they were being paid off documentation from the insurance companies. Um and then now how is like later on how did that shift? So when you think about the mechanics of how this works, and I for, forgive me for being transparent, but I'm gonna be I'm gonna just be straight with you. That's how we like it. It's a back and forth <laughs> tug of war between doctors and insurance companies because mm. naturally these insurance companies are a business and they want to, I don't want to say make it difficult to pay the doctors, but they want to challenge, you know, the, the doctors to make sure that they're doing the work to, you know, deserve the payout. So, and that's really what the economic backbone of healthcare was built on. When you look at it from a bird's eye view, there's a lot of problems with that. Mm -hmm. Right. Number one, you have the, the obvious problem of doctors sitting there every night until seven, eight, nine at night, having to write the whole day's worth of notes out, you know, to satisfy the way the insurance uh, claim uh, auditors w would want to see them so they can bill what they deserve to bill. That's the obvious problem. OK. Number two, um, there's, you know, fundamentally, there's no advancement of care um, you know, that we as humans can benefit from, from those doctors documenting the way they're, because those documents are just going into a folder, into a storage facility in their mm. basement. And yeah, if the insurance company asks for them, they'll fax them because by the way, they're not allowed to email them. But mm. Faxing is allowed. <laughs> it's a whole nother discussion. Is but that because <laughs> of security and privacy and go figure, right? I mean, I mean, <laughs> is that part of HEPA? Yeah, and, okay. and that's another topic we should talk about in a few yeah, minutes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we'll definitely. But anyways, yeah, believe it or not, HIPAA allows for faxing, but not for emailing, unless the email is 256-bit encrypted and so on. So the point I'm trying to make to you is I'm sitting here looking at this, saying to myself, and, and remember, I come from this background where I appreciate the value of data. Mm. I understand what you can do with data that's accumulated over time. And it makes no sense to me that we as humans are going to continue to evolve and benefit from healthcare, uh, you know, discoveries the way that we should be if we don't have that data in a shareable fashion. Uh, not I'm saying publicly, but I'm saying so that the, the greater medical community as a whole can run experiments with that data, can do things with it. It's not being discreetly kept uh, in a database properly. Now, one thing to mention when i say the word discrete i don't mean what you may think is discrete the term discrete in data terms means that like if you have a list of allergies even though in the note it may list out these are the patient's allergies if the data is kept discreetly it means that there's a database that keeps the allergies in a 
in a table where they're listed so that they can be reported on. You can run queries and say, show me all patients between this age and this age that admit an allergy to this with a reaction to this, but not this. Yeah. You understand? Yeah. And, and that's where we need to be, you know, as a, as a population that, that continues to challenge, uh, you know, healthcare and try and fight so that we can live to older and older ages and, and, and find cures for sicknesses, the only way we can logically do that is by appreciating and collecting that data. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. And so I, I kind of wanted to touch upon something that you mentioned already, which is uh, the idea that obviously insurance, they want to create, for lack of a better way of phrasing this, as many hurdles as possible or, or a challenge, like you said, um, for the doctors in order for the doctors to get reimbursed. Um, do you think that's essentially a disservice because a lot of doctors end up not accepting certain insurances because of how challenging it becomes? And then that affects the potential patients who are looking for doctors who are in their insurance network. Uh, or even going private, not even accepting insurance at all, right? They're yeah. all valid you know, arguments that many may use to argue that we need a single-payer system in this country. Um, I'm not saying that that's what I believe, but I'm just saying that uh, when you introduce, like if you look at countries that have single-payer systems, you obviously don't have these problems. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But there's also flip sides to that too. Yeah. Which is what? Well, a case in point with COVID. My wife is actually Canadian. She comes from Toronto. Okay. Her parents, you know, are, I believe, either in their late 60s or early 70s. Now, it's a standard in Toronto that they have to wait four months between the first and second vaccination, which is... Why is that? Because they don't have enough to go around. Mm. Okay. Um, and, you know, if you break down the reasons why, I mean, when you get down to it, it's obviously cost. Um, but... Long story short, you know, um, I know people north of the border that have found themselves in situations where they needed care, and the only appointments they can get, you know, for like uh, biopsy in some situations were like, you know, eight months down the road. And the way it works from what I've been told by my wife is that they have these clinics that'll do it for cash, you know, for without going through the government insurance. So if you have the money, you can pay and get you know, uh, healthcare quicker. So I said to my wife, I mean, isn't that basically what we do here? <laughs> you know, what's the purpose of having a single payer system and socialized medicine if you're going to, you know what I mean? You're yeah. defeating the whole purpose. So, but after living here, my wife completely understands the value of, of why we built our system from the, the coverage perspective the way we did. So the and and there goes like the benefits from that and um and to to Mina's point now you have now we have to deal with like now we're going to basically talk about that relationship between the insurance companies right. and the doctors throughout right. this right? right um you mentioned HIPAA for those who don't know what HIPAA is can you briefly just explain basically its function and um and then we'll, we can talk about its relevancy over time over time in the episode sure uh, HIPAA is, as many uh, may have heard it before, is uh, basically a, a privacy act that essentially it uh, entitles the patient to a slew of privacy uh, that protects their medical data. 
Okay. And I don't mean data, just like data. I mean, their medical information. Mm -hmm. So when you talk to a doctor, much like if you talk to a lawyer, whatever you tell them is very confidential. Mm -hmm. In fact, if they break that confidentiality, that's not only illegal, they can, you know, face questions and get, lose their license for that. Mm -hmm. But the point is, um, HIPAA goes, uh, several steps further and it, you know, the, there's a lot of, um, you know, it evolved over several decades. I don't know, you could probably look up and see, I forget what year it was originally instituted, but it evolved into what has become just not only inefficient, but also backwards, uh, you know, uh, protection of, of, of information. And let me explain what I mean by that. I said earlier how HIPAA has problems with emailing, but faxing is considered a-okay. Yeah. You know, why is that? Well, HIPAA was made at a time when email wasn't really a prevalent method of communication. Um, it was either basically you put a stamp on it and put it in a mailbox, you pick up the phone and say it through your, your words, or you can use this amazing breakthrough technology of uh, something called a fax mill, hmm. aka a fax, where if you pick up the phone and you ever heard one, it's like, dee, dee, dee. so of course, <laughs> who can understand what, what the heck the machine is saying? You know, I mean, yeah. so that's secure, right? I mean, I mean, that was the logic behind, obviously, uh, you know, why faxing is secure and, and why email is problematic. Since email can be, you know, and goes through so many intermediaries hmm. physically, like when you send an email, it's at a hosting company, it can be, uh, retrieved you know by people that aren't physically at the location where you know that's why there's all these problems with it hipaa even for example forces practices and again this is just assuming they they do right by hipaa mm -hmm. they're not allowed to have sign-in sheets you ever been to a doctor's office where they have a sign-in sheet mm. yeah. you know that's a violation of hipaa mm. really people wouldn't and so now what, what they may do is they'll still have the sign-in sheet, but they put them on labels so that as soon as you sign in, they take they your label and, and then put it, you know. But I see that and I say, you guys are missing the point, you know. We need to just throw away paper and pen in medical offices. Yeah. We have the technology and the software to totally support the workflow of any, you know, thriving medical practice. Mm. So so why don't they, uh, why is it, what's the hesitation, what's going on with these doctor's offices from adopting like what's currently available? Great question. And uh, that was something I would face on a daily basis, you know, challenges or reasons why doctors wouldn't feel like they're ready to take the leap. A lot of it in many cases had to do with money. Hmm. Uh, but with uh, President Barack Obama's administration came, you know, several incentives to digitize uh, medical data. Mm -hmm. For example, the Meaningful Use Act, which uh, they were basically allowing doctors to um, buy specific EMR systems that were certified meaningful use by the government, meaningful use ready, and in turn, they get a bonus for the purchase. Hmm. To move away from paper, a paper system, they basically, Obama administration basically just said, like, we, you need to get all paper system, get on EMR. Right. We need to not not we they didn't want to necessarily come out and say we're penalizing you hmm. for not doing it, we'll but we'll incentivize you. you for doing it. Okay. Yeah.
you have to also keep in mind that in uh, one thing I learned over the years working with doctors is, you know, first off, they're very smart people, but a lot of them are stuck in their own ways. Mm. God bless them. Yeah. And I can tell you stories that would amaze you, but, you know. Is it generational or is it like, like, do you not see these issues anymore? And like, for example, our generations. Like I'll, coming I'll tell into you a quick doctors. story because I told this to somebody yesterday. I did a demo once for MicroWise for a podiatrist. Okay. I... The first thing I say when I sit down is show me how you do your encounter notes, okay? I swear to you, and I'm not exaggerating, this guy, it looked like he was creating a ransom note, you know, out of a movie. <laughs> he cuts sentences out and glues them together with a glue stick and forms a note with, by taking sentences. He's got like, it's like an art project. And I, I was thinking to myself, wow, I'm going to blow this guy away because I'm going to show him how just with a few taps, you're going to have this two-page beautiful note. And I did my demo, I showed it to him. You want to know what his first question was afterwards? How much is it? <laughs> How am I going to get my sentences glued into the computer? <laughs> he's thinking about how he's going to glue, because he was so attached, you understand what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. Like he was so indebted into what he knows of the glue. He couldn't you know, remove himself for a moment to think, wait a minute, maybe let me just put this aside and think that there is possibly a better way of doing this. It's hard to break that barrier because a lot of people have been doing this for many years. Keep in mind, you know, a lot of these doctors have been practicing for 30, 40 years. And, you know, who am I to come along and say, listen, throw that out the window? Yeah. Right? So It's I mean, basically like, who the hell are you? I've been doing this all this time and I've been doing fine, basically. It's only natural, yeah. you know, to, and you have to obviously be respectful when you show it to them. You have to understand that a lot of doctors, they're very, you know, they're they don't like people coming in and, and doing things that in any way can make it even perceive that it's helping or pushing them to make decisions that they don't want to make. Like, I don't want a computer telling me what patients are at risk of something. I know what patients are at risk. Mm, you know what I, I mean? See. Okay. Um, and, and I Do you don't think know it's because it's a risk factor because, because of all the effort that has gone to that point of their career that they like... They're at. They're, they're responsible. Exactly. They don't want to feel like they're being replaced, or that there's somebody uh, watching them or looking at them and th saying that, "Hey, maybe you're not as good as you think you are." Mm. And that's, of course, not the intention here. Yeah. You know, uh, just to be very clear, but it, it's just natural that people tend to think that way. For example, when I would do a demo, a lot of staff, if they're in the room, they think to themselves, "Wait a minute, this software may make my job obsolete. You know, I shouldn't mm. be for this." But I make it clear to them and, and say to them, this allows your staff to focus on more revenue-generating tasks. Mm. Maybe they're doing things now that aren't generating so much revenue for the practice. Wouldn't it be great if you can use those same staff members to do things like market the practice in a better ways or in other mm. ways to get more patient flow? And, and, and that's the more productive way of looking at it. And that gives a lot of insight to people who are experiencing like what what it's, when they're actually going through the doctor's offices and they criticize maybe their experience uh, going through it and it gives this conversation gives them that insight of like basically what it's blocking them essentially from advancing that experience um, and you've already mentioned like there's many hurdles of that I want to get to you were talking about how they were getting paid based off the documentation in the early times now you. You and I and, and Mina were talking about fee for service, and how is that? So you were saying that they weren't getting charged for how long you were at the doctor's office for it. Did we? So then, was fee for service the next step from that documentation payment? So, so they they do get paid based on how long. Basically, there's different codes that uh, procedure codes they're called, mm. but 
in order to bill a higher procedure code, you better be prepared with documentation to show and satisfy that I level of, okay. of, of coding. So, you know, you have codes that show either a 15-minute visit, 30, 45, you know. But if you're billing 45, you better make sure you have, you know, the necessary amount of, like, you know, certain amount of review systems in your encounter. No, you need to have, uh, you know, subsets of your chief complaint that describe location, the timing, severity, uh, mod risk modifying factors, mm. all of these little things that, Doctors are not robots, so they can't sit there and spit this out, you know, from the top of their head. They, mm. But what if, hypothetically, work with me here, if I gave you a piece of technology, a piece of software that starts out your encounter note as complete as it can possibly be for every type of abdominal pain patient, let's say that's why they're here, mm. and all you have to do is change what's different about this patient. Logically... I mean, you're working backwards, but it's the smarter way to work because now I have a full note, you know, I did everything on there and I don't have to sit here typing it afterwards, right? But doesn't that cause uh, or create an issue from the insurance side where they start to see the repetition? Well, so great question. So, and, and specifically because these systems would have features like new from old. What that means is when the patient comes from a follow-up, you can just simply click on that last note and it uses that as a starting point for a new one. <laughs> yeah. So naturally, you know, remember those insurance companies who are playing the tug of war we talked about. Obviously, there's not a whole lot of problems they can have with it because, hey, that's what you wanted to begin with. We're giving you your full documentation. You know, we're giving you everything you asked for. And um, they are losing the battle on that. And that was really the big uh, return on investment that I would use to show doctors when I would sell the software, mm. this is where you make your money back. I mean, bottom line, the American Academy of Family Physicians back then, I, I saw a number that they said, and this was published, 96% of doctors at the time were underbilling. Why? Because they didn't want to raise a flag with the insurance company and get mm. audited. They I figure, listen, I may be eligible for that 45-minute thing, but I'll bill for the 30 minute because I don't want the headache of having them coming in auditing me. Hmm. I say to them, what do you mean you don't want the headache? If you're doing the work, you should be getting compensated for it. You know, that's crazy. And if, if it's just because you're scared that you missed uh, something in your handwriting notes, we're all human. I understand that's a reason to be scared, but use the software or this technology that protects you essentially. There was one cardiologist that comes to mind we were going back and forth with this guy and for, for years. Finally, he called me up one day. He said, I'm embarrassed to tell you this. I got audited yesterday. Mm. And over $100,000 in, in penalties. Wow. And the next day, I was in his office doing the implementation. Um, you know, in, and, you know, and th those situations, I mean, obviously, I mean, I'm happy that uh, ultimately they came to their senses, but insurance companies are realizing that uh, you know these EMR systems are very efficient and they have to do things you know uh, differently I guess from the way they've done over the last you know 40 50 years so the doctor okay so the clinic fills out these notes they're trying to get reimbursed by the insurance company now out of curiosity is a person reviewing these notes from the insurance side, or is this also computerized? So what happens is the insurance companies are allowed to uh, audit the doctor's notes. They don't review every note, but if they 
if they do an audit, then they do review every note. So naturally, they have their own systems in place on their end that probably raise flags based on what situations they need to audit people. But I've heard stories where an auditor comes in and they're using you know, something from MicroWise that we sold them and they said, oh, forget it, my job is done here. They realize they're not gonna win because you can't find fault in, you know. That's really what these auditors look for are, are instances where they may have been uh, you know, overbilled and don't have the necessary documentation to support it. That's really, you know, what they look for. So Larry and I were were kind of talking about uh, exactly what we wanted to bring up to you and, and extrapolate from you. And so we were talking about the, uh, you know, doctors getting reimbursed based on the time that they spend with a patient. Now, apparently, there's this new transitioning process of payment that Larry Value-based reimbursement, right? Value-based, so which when he kind of summarized it by saying uh, doctors getting paid based on improvement or, or change in the patient, kind of sounds appealing. Very, right? And it started uh, actually back when I was still at MicroWise with a little experiment that I believe it was Medicare they ran called PQRI. It stands for Physician Quality Reference Index. And what that was is they would basically say, if you would submit to us, the government, certain metrics of immunization data, and they, they specified what those metrics were, we would give you bonuses for that. And I saw, and I, I had the foresight back then to see what they were doing. I understood that they're just basically tiptoeing before they ran with this whole value-based, I call it VBR, value-based reimbursement model. So you saw the foreshadowing This, this is exactly, yeah. The, and, and, and quite frankly, they need to go in this direction. Where what, I, what that means is that they are trying to... Who's they, the insurance companies or the government in this instance? Like who made this decision of value? Obviously, I mean, the insurance company, they lobby for what they want. So, But at the end of the day, it's the government that's making you know the decisions here. What they want to do is and I'll explain it to those who are watching or listening and, and don't know much about the space other than what they see when they go to the doctor, they realize that like a lot of things that the internet and that data has revolutionized, healthcare too has to be revolutionized, uh, economically that is. And what, the, what I mean by that is they need to start reimbursing doctors for doing a better job rather than spending their time. Because I can walk you into certain clinics that are just like a, a factory where you wouldn't know the difference if they were cars coming through an assembly line or patients going through it. Yeah. And, and that's not what we want to see either. You know, listen, it may be efficient for the doctor, but the, the real underlying problem, I'll tell you as a patient with it, is most people, whether they realize it or not, have an, a deep inherited trust in their doctors. They somehow believe that if I'm at risk for something, my doctor is going to call me and give me a heads up. Which is not the case. It, it, Most exactly, of the time. exactly. I mean, listen. It, you know, it's always good to go for the yearly checkups because they can see things they may not have known otherwise. But just think of it. Imagine you were that doctor, and you know, you see the patient maybe once every year at the most, right? Am I going to call you and say, "Hey, don't forget that your great aunt had breast cancer and died before she was forty, uh, so make sure you get a mammogram"? No, right. We need to have preventative care uh, systems in place that make use of data that give those doctor's offices 
information to work off of so they can have their staff calling the patients that might be uh, pre-exposed to things like breast cancer genetically, yeah. right? Um, and that's a whole another topic, but it's called, you know, preventative care or, or uh, you know, and, and all of the EMR systems back then and today have ways of accomplishing that where they basically have these algorithms writ, uh, written in them so that they can show you patients that might need to, you know, be reminded they should be coming in. And I want to I, I want to get to that uh, literally after this point because I want to close that part of the conversation. You were mm-hmm. saying the insurances were lobbying for the value base because you were meant, you were kind of hinting at it earlier is that the insurance companies, if documented well from the doctor's end, they were pretty much always getting their money essentially if things were done right through the software. So in, in the sense that those hurdles that the insurance company at that end, they really couldn't really stop that. I mean, if you were doing it right, you were doing it right, you were getting your money. Now, value-based adds some complications of getting that money from the insurance companies, which would you make that argument that it was in their benefit to change it? Or well, I, I want to first start out by saying, just for the record, you know, I'm not like uh, an opponent of insurance companies, okay? I mean, I don't want people to get a picture that they're simply completely money hungry greedy people that's fair okay but they are a business yeah don't don't forget that you know and they are not in business just to be waiting for you know a claim from your doctor just so they could quickly send them a check yeah that's not how the you know their job is to really i want to say you know push resistance on abuse because obviously there's a lot of abuse and that's a problem but also, in a way, they are interested in you being healthy because mm. they don't make money if you're not healthy. They lose money when you're not healthy. Because a doctor could just be documenting every visit but show no progression whatsoever to the patient well, and then just keep getting money from the insurance company. Exactly. And they'll be like, why am I even paying this doctor exactly. all this, time, all this many times? And when yeah. you look at things from the insurance company's perspective, they have that to look at. They also have the, the idea of, hey, here's a patient that if he, or she gets, you know, the right treatment over the years, even if they may have diabetes or other underlying conditions, we won't have to spend as much money caring for them as as if, you know, uh, this other way of doing business played out. If we put incentives in place for the doctor to, you know, be more present and to be more reminding of them to do what they need to do to take care of themselves, in the end, they'll save money. And it's the truth. They will, insurance companies. You know, it's almost like a reallocation of money if, if you look at it, because obviously they're very smart and they're not looking to spend more money. But what they are looking to do is incentivize doctors that keep patients healthy. Why? Because patients come out better, doctors come out better, and obviously they come out better because patients, you know, that are healthy don't need so much insurance, uh, yeah. you know. And so the... So that now becomes like a data problem to solve because they need the data to prove that the patient is getting better. Precisely. Now, when did this come into play, the system of value-based reimbursement? Precisely. How long? Uh, so that's from Obama's administration, or when did it exactly it's come been, in? It's been slowly coming into play for quite some time. Okay? Yeah. So I, I, I was with uh, that uh, company we talked about, MicroWise, until about 2008. I know that in my last year, I, or last two years, I think, was when they started with that PQRI initiative we were talking about. From there, it progressed. And I think by 2010, 2011, they really hit the gas on offering incentives to doctors to go digital, like big incentives. And that was actually a dynamic shift in the EMR market. There was hundreds of EMR companies. And 
there was a major consolidation that occurred. Companies, eight other companies, they bought them out. They, other companies couldn't afford to stay in business because they couldn't keep up with the requirements that uh, this government uh, meaningful use initiative put, uh, you know, put forward. Um, long story short, as uh, your father once taught me, uh, <laughs> the big fish always end up eating the little fish. Yeah. And there's this cycle that repeats. And that's what happened then. And so now, now we're at the data. Now we're at the data issue. Now, um, my father's business, when you, uh, even when you were there at the time, you primarily worked with private doctors, doctors who are not part of I mean, private, meaning just like they're not part of the hospital, uh, and the, you know they're pretty much just on their own, uh, running their own business. Now, they were making their money from fee for service. Now, value base comes in. Now, what? Did they need and what's the struggles? Basically, now we're gonna basically extract this whole like value base from impacting them because it seems like it's more impactful to a private individual than it is towards a hospital who may have more of a means to handle this issue. Uh, so Me meaning it's more of a challenge. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right, and there was and to be honest with you, I uh, when I left Microwise and and moved uh, to a different aspect in the healthcare IT space. I was started focusing on dealing less directly with practices and more directly with software companies, mm. because that's really where uh, a lot of things happened. Uh, number one, software as a service really took off. The cloud concept of of having uh, you know a cloud out there, it didn't exist when I started at Microwise, but by the time I left, it revolutionized the industry. And I could tell you how different the industry was over those eight years, I mean, in a whole podcast by itself, you know? For sure. Um, when I started there, it was normal to go into a doctor's office and walk out with a proposal with everything from a server down to workstations. You need laptops. You need, you know, client-server software installed. By the time I left, everything was cloud-based. Everything was subscription, you know, pay monthly license, you know, uh, and, and, and that really rocked the world uh, for a lot of these software companies. Which comes into importance with like preventative care because now it's a consolidation of a lot of data, right? So like now, how are these doctors getting this data? Like what's that problem well, and how are they solving that problem so of getting the data? That's, a, that's exactly where I was headed. I wanted to say that I, I went to another company after Microwise that deals specifically with the interoperability of that data or the plumbing of that data. So, um, because that's a natural question is, what happens when mission accomplished? We have all these practices digital. How do I get my doctor over here to uh, send my digital data to my cardiologist over there? Wait a minute, they can't, why? Hippo? No, because they're using wow. two different EMR systems. Oh, that's a, yeah. yeah. And that's, that was a big problem with the way this whole EMR system was, uh, concept was introduced into the healthcare space was, EMR companies were smart and realized we don't want to make it easy for doctors to communicate off of our system. You want to communicate? Buy licenses or buy our software yeah. and communicate on our platform. It's like the Apple ecosystem. It's like exactly. they, they all use that same ecosystem. And imagine if you had that mentality, but you had like a dozen or even five dozen apples, like companies that were operating at that level. That's what was happening. And that's a problem. Uh, especially from the government's perspective, because they're thinking we're throwing all this money at this meaningful use problem, but... The data's still not shared. Right, so 
what happened is they came out with another round of meaningful use two requirements. So the, if, even if you pass meaningful use round one now, a few years later, they said, here's meaningful use two. You have to pass in order for doctors to get the, the money. One of the requirements was you have to be able to exchange data between systems. Now, some people may have heard the term HL7. Um, you can briefly just explain, yeah. HL7 is uh, was formed by the ASTM. It's a uh, basically a intermediary language, if you will, that was built to facilitate things like lab results digitally. Now, HL7 is not efficient efficient for you know the transmission of a full patient record. So the industry realized at that time, hey, we need to have something new to be able to do that. And I was actually, believe it or not, on the committee that formed what was called CCD or CCR slash CCD. Continuity Care Records, Continuity Care Documents, where it was basically a ramped up version of HL7, where you can really go to any EMR and do a full proper export of all your data so that it can be properly imported into another system. Gotcha. Okay, most doctors, believe it or not, don't realize if I want to switch systems, all I need to do is buy the new one, right? And all my data will just be there. They don't realize that there's Wait Apple ecosystem, and they can't and export right. the data. Exactly. Why? Because they're used to things like, oh, I use Peachtree for accounting, and now I switch to QuickBooks. When I install QuickBooks, it just converts everything. So, I mean, hey, it must be that simple, but it's not. And there, and that's where in 2011, I am proud to say I was actually one of the first uh, people. The company I was with at the time was one of the first companies to really hit the market with full-scale EHR data migration services because there were a lot of doctors that either were using an EMR system that was not meaningfully use certified and they needed to switch systems because they're getting money to switch, but how are they gonna get all this data that they put in there for years and years? They need a company to you know make sure it's not only taken out, but that it's put in the new system the right way. Think about it for a second. You don't want like 95 PDF files on a patient just so you can dig through them to see, hey, they're allergic to penicillin. You wanna know when you open their record, Allergic to penicillin, problem, flag. Yeah. The only way to do that is to keep that data discreet, as I was saying before. And that's like, so now that's converting from a system to system. Now what's what's going on with like, because I know there's systems like this around and I'm just trying to get this like extrapolated. If I'm, uh, if I'm in, in physical therapy mm -hmm. and I want to know the I want to know like what's uh, all the information that you when you went to your radiologist like how so, now that communication what's going on with that so, so the first step of it was to really make the data exchangeable by making that CCD CCR CCD format second the government I told you they they added that to the requirements of meaningful use and you know just to put this in perspective some of the companies out there that that were given that meaningful use certification it's a series two they put that functionality in their system to export all of the patient records as a CCD. And as soon as they got the certification, they took it right out. Oh, wow. I mean, that's how shady in some cases. It's unfortunate, but this is what we're, you know, you're dealing with. And that's why if, if you're familiar with the healthcare IT space, you'll know there's all these different organizations that say that they're pro the proper interoperability and, and democratization of healthcare data. These are the fancy words they use. But the fundamental problem is that these EMR companies 
at the core, they're businesses and they don't want to lose customers. Yeah. And I've seen them. They they basically hold doctors hostage. But why are they losing business if if like they if like if the doctor is already using their EMR and then they want to just they want to be able to a doctor wants to be aware of information from another from a patient that was using another doctor. Is it because they weren't also in that doctor's well, system? In, in that's, those that's, situations, that's... you're right. It's they're not. But it's what happens if that doctor wants to switch systems? I don't want to make it easy for them to switch. Mm -hmm. That's the thinking that has really put a stumbling block in the, in the growth here. Yeah. Now, we're at a point in the year 2021 where we've kind of really surpassed and, and, and gotten over that hurdle. Uh, there's been a lot of advancements in the last few years. Something called FHIR, F-H-I-R, which is basically a new version of HL7 was okay. introduced that can really facilitate the broad... Uh, you know, uh, the broad uh, sharing of, of patient clinical data like, you know, in a health system environment, which is, you know, a pretty large environment. Health systems generally own many hospitals. Yeah. Uh, so we're at that level. So I want people listening to feel like we're confident and we're not like, uh, you know, we're not in a position where we're stuck. But I'm just explaining a lot of the... Yeah hurdles along the way that companies saw with the growth in this in this field and why it was so frustrating. Why it took this long, basically. Why it took this long. And why, if I could go back 20 years and say to myself, why isn't every doctor using this as a standard? It's this mentality that I've been talking about all this time that gets in the way with with the ideal utopian way of, of, of the right way of handling data. But th thankfully, thank God, we've evolved into a situation where patients are in control uh, in the sense that they're able to see whatever doctor they believe will they'll get the best care from. Yeah. Um, things like telemedicine has evolved, um, you know, and that's a whole nother topic, but, you know, all these things are moving in the right direction. I'll say that. Now, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to, to I'm, I'm kind of curious. So there's there's a ton of data and, and we're not strangers to data getting into the wrong hands. Um, and so let's say in a hypothetical uh, situation where these systems are integrated and doctors are inputting all this data and data is being used for research and innovation and advancement of medical uh, of medicine. Now there's obviously, you know, the, the other side of it, which the conspiracy, uh, conspiracy theorists would start babbling about uh, data being stolen or breached or, being used by larger corp uh, corporations for whatever other reasons. Is this a topic in mind and is there anything being done uh, to keep that data safe and secure and, and out of the, the hands of wrong people? Is there government intervention? Is there any, any regulation? It is absolutely a topic that must always be in mind uh, and is paramount as far as I'm concerned because we can never lose sight of the patient's right to and uh, and the, the clinic's responsibility to privacy for that patient. Uh, patients uh, should feel comfortable disclosing information at their doctor that they should not have to think twice. This will get in the wrong hands. Um, and the way that data traditionally gets used for scientific use is there's a process called de-identification where they take out specific identifiers, patient's name, social security number, but they do leave things in like the age, they leave in their, their, their income, their socioeconomic uh, situation, where they live, what the general income level is in their community. You know, 
things like that, because all those things at the end of the day can play into their experiments to see how their care can be improved. And yeah. that's the preventative care yes. that you were talking about and the algorithms to basically help the doctor understand that, hey, like the, the statistics of this patient from what they have could lead to this. You should probably do X, Y, Z. When I was talking about it earlier, I was really thinking on, on like a baby step level to where we're at today. Where we're at today is we've really hit that forefront and that, that crossing level of artificial intelligence, which is a great thing. I mean, just the words AI, you know, it, it sends shivers down my spine because it's, mm -hmm. it's a huge responsibility. Yeah. Our generation is at a massive fork in the road in, in, you know, in the broad you know, history of humankind. I mean, when you look at our history as we evolved, from wherever, however you believe we ended up here as people, whether we came from monkeys, whether there was a big bang, whatever it was, a lot of stuff happened for us to get here. But when you look at the last 100 years, a lot of stuff has changed. And when you look at the next 100 years, a lot of stuff is going to change at a much greater pace. So it's important for us to make sure that those pace uh, improvement, uh, those pace changes are, are not um, held short by these little obstacles we've seen over the last two decades, for example, I've been talking to you about. We want to make sure that we can use AI the way it should be used, so that we can fight cancer, we can fight Alzheimer's, we can fight all these diseases that have hurt and killed people and families and so on and so forth. Because it would be unacceptable 50 years from now to say that we have no progress in the field of Alzheimer's yeah. or, you know what I'm saying? Is, is AI playing a, a role right now in medicine? It's starting to, but the natural point for AI to be able to do anything is it needs data. You can't really expect results without providing data to it. And AI, like uh, any intelligence, it gets smarter over time. We've seen, um, and, and, and that's, by the way, on a side note, why I do now what I do, which is I'm consulting in the space I love and helping companies that are either new to healthcare or are pivoting from different industries and applying their technology to healthcare. Yeah. I help them from the business side to try and get uh, either outsourced business development or try and get the right... Um, you know, marketing in place and, and understanding and, and, and relationships in place to be effective and hit the ground running. Because, I mean, you can see some of the greatest technology, you know, uh, out there when they hit the healthcare field, it's like they don't know what they're doing. I mean, I don't want to single out any specific companies, but when you go to some of these conferences, you see companies like, you know, okay, like Uber, for example, I'll just say this publicly. I saw Uber at Hims two years ago, and I was so thrilled to see they're getting into healthcare. Yeah. When I went to them and I said, "Why are you guys here?" They said, "We don't know. We're here because Lyft is here. You see, they have a booth." <laughs> and <laughs> it's the truth. And 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 but that's what happens, you know. And I get it. In 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 so they have to always be, you know, at competing neck at the yeah. yeah. right. And that's great, you know, because honestly, that's how we make progress and move with forward. Competition, right? And yeah. Uber, to be honest with you, I don't want to. If they're watching, they've done a lot of great things. Like they they. They were experimenting with, you know, setting up rides for patients that can't drive after procedures. Yeah. You know, great, very, you know, intuitive stuff. The point I'm trying to make, though, is companies, they tend to jump into spaces like telemedicine or other areas in healthcare, like, um, 
you know, especially now that, you know, data is really being used to fuel AI systems, companies are really trying to find, you know, sweet spots in healthcare, and I help them do that. That's what and I do. Are doctor's offices equipped enough to gather the data to not only, I mean, we were talking about value-based reimbursement, to not only get their money from the insurance companies to show that the patient is improving, but to even find the value towards these algorithms to make sure they're they're aligned with basically it's like a cross check right like this is the data i was able to extract from the patient now i want to cross check it with the system to see what the system recommends basically or like what's the history of this kind of condition yes so i think let me answer that by prefacing it to what have they done before this think about it have you ever gone to a doctor and seen that physician desk reference that like 50 page, 50 book series where they supposedly you know look up anything they're not sure of where they yeah. go you know what i mean imagine being a doctor and really having to do that and now imagine a world where it just pops up or is a tooltip on the screen that gives you that information without even thinking about what volume it's in you know it's game changing right and the whole point is it allows good doctors to continue being good doctors by saving time yeah. and not you know doing things that waste time so that's the end game uh, for the small doctors is to try and help their clinical decision making. That's really the main term that floats out there is to enhance their clinical decision making. We don't want to make decisions for those doctors. Obviously, we respect them as the caregiver and a computer is never going to replace the doctor's ability to care for the patient. But if it's going to help uh, the doctor see the situation in a much broader sense than they possibly could have because it's getting data from all over the place. Why not? Yeah. You know? Now, can you comment on, is is this relative to, because from my understanding, the doc, private doctors, a lot of them, after this value-based reimbursement came in, a lot of them seem to not get like transition well enough where they got went into the hospitals. So why is that? What has been the challenges from them? Um, I mean, that goes to the previous question aspect of like, did they have, were they equipped or like, I mean, what was the break in that, uh, in that essence? Because that well, seems to expedite a it, lot of it, it. It's, that's a great question. It's, it's really been rough for a lot of private practicing doctors uh, because they find themselves in situations where they're essentially competing uh, with hospitals, quite frankly. That's really what it comes down to. And at the end of the day, hospitals, they know how to churn out from the business angle and, and, and make the, the best use of doctor's time because they're run by very smart people. Insurance companies tend to like that. Yeah, They like working with hospitals. They have negotiated rates with them. They, they know that there's a lot of oversight and things like that, and they can use you know things for their advantage. The point I'm trying to make is doctors have found themselves either fighting with these hospitals to try and stay in business and in some cases ultimately having to sell their business to the doctor uh, to the hospitals this is big fish eating little fish you're 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 competing with a a business that has all the equipment that they would need right against a against a small a small fish essentially and now when you're talking about a data it's a matter of who has more data the hospital will outcompete you with that is that well, essentially what it is what's well, going to that's or? a great observation you're making because the hospital is very smart and they realize um, they realize that if they have the information and they have the data on the patients the patients will be more likely to come to them for the care yeah I mean um, 
I, I heard this whole scenario, you know, predicted in 2003 when I was at a conference in Las Vegas and uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Mark Anderson, who I, who actually, he and I still work together on in, in many projects, he laid this whole thing out back then. And he was so spot on uh, where he explained that the future of healthcare is going to be a community. And he drew a picture of a little town. At the center is the hospital. And their job is to make sure that everything flows into the hospital yeah. because if the data goes in, the patients go in, whether it's for emergency room, whether it's for routine. And what does that do for the practice over here? You know, that's the question. And it sounds like exactly what happened in tech, right? So now that's a good transition, right? It's like Amazon and Google, now they have the prowess, the algorithm, they have the technology when it comes to like artificial intelligence and in terms of data holding, are, are they getting a piece of the pie now and like what's their involvement now? So, um, do you want me to, you know, take a step back? Let me explain, by the way, because sure, yeah, like, yeah, I, I, when I was digressing on some things to discuss, I figured when you brought this up, I'd mention it. I read a book recently on how Amazon got started and Jeff Bezos, and it's a really fascinating story. Um, but he's a very frugal and very careful spender. Um, there's the famous story that, you know, he didn't, he didn't even have a desk. He used an old door as his desk, you know, because he didn't find that, you know. And his car was like, a you, Honda know, Civic, yeah. you know, when he was worth billions. If, you, if yeah. you have a few moments on YouTube, look it up. You'll see the interview in 2001 with Jeff Bezos. Yeah. It's fascinating. Uh, I mean, his the Amazon office then was literally like a hole in the wall in the middle of like the cheapest, you know, retail space you could find. point I'm trying to make is, it came up at a meeting early on in Amazon. They said, you know, we have all these computers but and all this processing power, but we're not necessarily using all that processing power all the time. And Jeff Bezos looked at his right-hand man. He said, I want you to figure out a way we can, you know, maybe lease that unused processing power out to some companies. You know, maybe we can just get use of it. Why do we just let it sit there, right? This, that was the birth of AWS, right there. And they, they didn't have a business plan for it. This wasn't meant to make money. This was just to, to you know, Jeff Bezos' way of, of you know, plugging no up waste. waste. No, yeah, no waste. Exactly. Yeah. And, and if, I, if he would have known back then that this would be the, the bread and butter of Amazon's future, which it is. I mean, if you think for a second that they really make their money on, on sending you, you know, pots and pans, Listen, they, they, they do well, they, they learn a lot about you, they keep you happy as a loyal customer, but where they make their money is on AWS yeah. and their cloud. People don't realize that everything is stored in the cloud. Even up until recently, Apple's iTunes music would be stored in, in now finally Apple has their own. Yeah, Apple know. music, yeah. Right, but I'm saying Apple would rely on these well-known cloud infrastructures to store Dropbox even. You know, they don't have their own server farm. They're using AWS. Um, you know, I don't know about up to today. I know as of like a year ago. The point is, is that he never would have imagined that. But th I mean, that was definitely just, you know, a major decision that impacted the future of everything. Why? If you were a startup software company 20 years ago, you had to worry about things like getting a server, setting up a network, having a network administrator, making sure there's protection, firewall. Now you can spin up a, a, a network in under 90 seconds on AWS. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's that 
it's it's that advanced yeah um so everything in the cloud you know uh especially healthcare wise uh is useful and then to get back to your question who controls the cloud obviously you have companies like google you have companies like amazon are they in a position to benefit you better believe it i mean whether they know it or not they're going to benefit from it a big piece came out of year and a half ago that uncovered a, a active relationship between Google and a very large health system where apparently un, unbeknownst to the patients of that health system Google was collecting data and it was supposedly done legally wow. because one question I get a lot is well how is the patient uh, allowed to, I mean how does the patient sign off on allowing their data to be used for whatever uh, for, for these you know um, either uh, AI system or whatever when you sign those forms when you go to a doctor's office part of the, if you read what you're signing it's there's a business associate agreement and in the HIPAA form somewhere it basically says that you give us the right to share your information with um, you know parties uh, we work with that might contribute to the quality of care that we give you. Which, which is, is a fancy way of saying big tech. Right, but it's, it's not like we're selling your data or anything like that, yeah. but you know, leave it to Google to figure out a way to sell it because I'm sure that it will yeah. happen, right? Well, I mean, it's the criticism that Facebook got, right? Because right, all these third parties that Facebook was dealing with and that Facebook's argument was you have a better experience if we share your data with these third parties and if that had a fuss, I can't even imagine now what the battles are going to be with health, uh, healthcare information with these uh, big companies. People, people, they, uh, you know, listen, I, I think a lot of people don't realize how big some of these plays are. It's a chess game, and there's so many moves ahead that these companies have thought of. Like Fitbit was something that came to mind. I would always tell people when they go and buy a $99 Fitbit, you know, and then this company Fitbit goes public. They think, wow, you know, it's a device company. It's not a device company. Yeah, data company it's yeah. a data company. They know data based on, and because now they're branching out and learning a whole lot more. Apple was smart and jumped on it with Apple Watch. Apple Watch. But I want to play uh, devil's advocate for a moment. Mm -hmm. Who cares? So let's say, hypothetically, I have high blood pressure, right? My data, My data gets out there. How does that get used? Who cares if well, some people big tech knows? Feels, some people feel that, wait a minute, you know, now this may pr uh, prevent me from certain job opportunities. This may, uh, you know, haunt me somehow because somehow there's going to be a database, uh, a risk database, and, you know, if I have some condition or something, I don't want people knowing about it. I don't want them to look uh, down on me. You know, AIDS, for example, is something that's very sensitive uh, to, to a lot of people especially, you know, uh, many years ago when there weren't as many treatments for it. Now, yeah. th thankfully, there's more treatments, but the point is, it's a very, you know, you, you cannot, you have to respect the privacy of each and every patient, whether or not they have serious conditions like that. You have to treat them all, you know, very confidentially. And that's the job of HIPAA at this point, because we were mentioning it, that it had, like how its involvement will be over this time, and it seems like it's going to be at its peak of its responsibility there, there, with this. there's already been little chatter that i've heard where they're trying to basically make it a revamped version of hipaa because there's a lot of inefficiencies that hipaa was made i think and again you can correct me if i'm wrong 1996 it was 1996 yeah. 
I, was it created then, or I think it was maybe last revised then? I thought it was made in no, the eighties. No, began. It, it, okay. It was developed in nineteen ninety six. Okay, all right. And so it was part of the Social Security Act. Right. So it, okay, um, thank you. That's right. It was part. It was built to really protect privacy uh, over the Social Security Act. It wasn't really built for the internet and for, for for thinking about down the road of cloud. They didn't. Yeah. If you would have went back in time and said the word cloud, they'd be looking up in the sky and, you know. Looking they, at they, physical <laughs> clouds. They, they, you know, obviously. It's like the, the, the challenge with the patent agency with software. is like they, they, when they did the patent agency, they only understood it to be like a physical things, right? Like, and then now software came into being like, how does patents work with software? It's a similar dilemma. It's like. It's a all, very all, similar yeah. dilemma. Sure. I mean, I saw an article that somehow, you know, the submarine was patented like 200 years ago and, you know. There was no submarines then, but some guy with a lot of time on his hands, yeah, and you know what I mean, figured out a design and somehow patented it, you know. But yeah, that's a great example, and that's why Albert Einstein loved working, by the way, in some way in the patent office, even though he hated it. <laughs> but he was intrigued by you know the stuff he saw come through. Now, Mike, are you aware? So it, it's very clear that you're uh, very aware of the space of EMR and and just the medical field as a whole. But is this just a domestic situation or is this also, do you have an understanding of what's going on overseas? And I kind of want to understand the comparison. Are country, other countries, you know, in this EMR field, are they interested in collecting data also? Where is our health system in comparison to other countries? That's a great question. So for the most part, I focus on the U.S. My exposure overseas, though, generally is limited to about a week or so every year when I go to this conference called HIMSS, which happens to be next week in Las Vegas, and I'm going. Um, fun. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Should be fun. Thank you. But anyways, that's where you're gonna, you see a lot of players from international uh, health systems and other countries come, generally because they like to see what's going on in the U.S. because they copy it, and they, they try and get it to be used in their country. Like, uh, I know... Dubai, for example, there is a huge revival economically in that, you know, on that side of the world of, of, of modernizing everything. And they put a lot of money into making sure that they have the best of the best. Uh, so they have a whole delegation that comes to this conference, you know, to see what's going on. And all these countries come there to see what's going on because they realize that the best talent, um, you know, for for lack of a better term, is, is usually coming, you know, out of out of the U.S. Hopefully, it continues that way. But and so from um, from those who are listening in, they heard a lot of the history. They heard a lot about what um, what's being figured out now when it comes to preventative care. Now, what obviously we don't want to ever leave with like uh, you know any pessimism of like the system. Uh, obviously, there's always a positive outlook to how things are changing, how things are going to be better for the future. Uh, is preventative care is how you would tell someone basically like this is coming, this is going to make your your all of our lives a lot better uh, health wise. Like, what's that future positive outlook as aspect to what people can look forward to? And also, what's the timeline? Yeah, is this something that's in in the something very very is, near yeah. future? Is this happening now? Is this still uh, just a thought? So, uh, both great questions. So. What, the, what I would tell you is just to recall back when I said that most people have this inherent trust that their doctor will call them when there's a problem. Once you get over the fact that doesn't happen, you then start to realize you're in control of your own 
care. Have you ever been in a situation where you know something's wrong, but you're putting it off because you really don't want to face it? Yeah. You're afraid of the cause, so you're afraid of facing it as many... Uh, you just don't want it to interfere with whatever it is you have going on. Now, is that the best way to handle something? Obviously not, right? So I'm not trying to say that we can't be trusted with our own care. What I'm trying to say is that we need to apply science, the science and, and AI benefits to uh, helping us care for ourselves. And the only way to really do that is to learn from uh historic data and us as a collective yeah i mean when you you know when you think about where healthcare has come over since i think modern healthcare was formed in 1862 okay over the last even even from 1862 to the 1962 okay when you think of how far uh modern healthcare grew in in, in those hundred years okay it was based on really just uh you know the ability of doctors being able to learn how to care for patients and act on that not so much on bringing back what they learned and helping the community as a whole they did do that through medical journals but that was it the internet has changed that because what we're seeing now is a situation where everything is being cataloged organized uh, you know what i mean and and broken down whether we know it, whether we don't know it. In most cases, some companies don't even know what they're going to do with it, but they're smart enough to know that they need to be keeping that data because they're going to figure it out. Um, There's so much value. There, it, it's so much value to it. It's going to be used to a greater whole um, and because at, at some, someone's going to be collecting all of this, right? So there's right. Like a treasure it's, to it. Whether it's a pharmaceutical company yeah. that needs to fine-tune some of their medications. They personalized have medicine is going to be like a future thing for them, right? All this stuff is going to matter. I mean, personalized medicine has been around for a long time. Most people haven't heard of it because of the cost, uh, you know, issues. You know, it's fascinating that if you take the same pill that I take, scientifically, if we, they analyze our brains, you'll see that it affects people differently. Why? Because when you break it down, we're all really just a series of chemicals, you know, and those chemicals are different person to person generally controlled by our genes and our lifestyle. But the point is that, you know, as, just as you see, like, for example, the space wars, uh, you know, how competitively uh, these countries that, that are space-going countries are competing to get, you know, uh, leisure flights up to the, uh, you know, the outer uh, hemisphere, whatever. Yeah. So it's amazing to think that, you know, uh, Richard Branson or, you know, Bezos, literally they built, uh, or Musk, they built their own space companies. Yeah. Can you imagine saying that you did that? I mean, you know, it's fascinating when you think about it. But they, these, are the, these are the brilliant minds we need to help us move into the future, um, to help us facilitate all of this data so we can evolve as a people. And there's always going to be challenges along the way. But we need to make sure that we think collectively and, and uh, you know, understand that all of these things are meant ultimately to help us. And hopefully they're done in ways to prevent those who are trying to harm us, like hacking groups and so yeah. on. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be a beautiful story. It's, it's going to be really exciting looking forward. I'm and... trying to set this up for a part two, so, so I'll come. <laughs> no, of course. Yeah. No, there's, there's, 
we've mentioned topics where you already mentioned that like you can extract them to a whole different episode on their own there's a lot of uh we we kind of hit the type of the iceberg seriously i i think there there's gonna need a, to be a part two there's gonna there's gonna be because i guarantee <laughs> you in six months from now there'll probably be so much that has Changes, changed and we yeah. need to know what's going on at that convention so see what's going yeah. what's changing at the uh when i started my consulting company telemedicine existed but nobody really used it or heard of it why because insurance companies weren't paying for it yeah yeah in 2015 or 2016 that all changed when medicare started paying for telemedicine and by the way the way it works is that usually insurance companies follow what medicare does so that's that was the first domino that fell in in a great way i mean and the argument for it was just quickly patients that live in rural areas they may have the same health care coverage you have yeah their argument was why should i be less able to see a doctor just because of my location i'm yeah. paying the insurance company the same amount so i sh if there's technology that i can video chat with my doctor why wouldn't that suffice the insurance company's needs for you know and that was really the the birth of the telehealth field and that opens so much more opportunities because now you remove the barriers of your geographic area of like opportunities for you for your care and so now it's like open the gate for the whole country to get yeah, access to absolutely it. so it's an exciting it's an exciting very experience. exciting so exciting that i decided to go to the ata the uh, telehealth conference by the way back yeah. then the first year there was like 30 vendors the next year there was 70 the following year there was three or four hundred Oh, I mean, you see the rate of... It's accelerating. And when I, w I would go to these companies and say, so, like, what do you guys do? And we have this equipment, that equipment. What do you do in telehealth? We're not sure yet. We're looking to see how we can yeah. get... And, and, and that made me realize that I'm in a sweet spot because I try to help companies like that that say they're the best at, you know, uh, like Zoom, for example. Zoom, obviously, they're doing something right, right? Yeah. But they're having a hard time really breaking into the telehealth space, you know? So I think this is a great way to yeah. to conclude. A person who is very hesitant on telemedicine and data aggregation of 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 medical information. What do you tell them? Look at COVID. Okay, I was bullish on telehealth before COVID, and then COVID hit. Yeah, and now all of a sudden, the same people that said to me nobody will ever use phones to see doctors. They called me up and said, wow, now I see, I see where, where <laughs> yeah. you know, just like that, you had companies overnight sh panicking to figure out how they're going to continue to open up and see their patients. And I know practices that are thriving and they're still closed physically, but their caregivers are all doing telemedicine appointments. And it's either you're going to be part of the train of that movement of like better care from using technology or it seems like you're going to be really missing out on a lot of the Put benefits. Put it this way, the days of taking off a half a day to go to the doctor are going to end Menish, up being limited. Yeah. So if you don't get on the train, you're going to be the guy in the office who's asking for a day off so you can go to a doctor's appointment. Everyone's going to be like, what? You know, I mean, because let's face it. I mean, it's it's a it's a huge it's a huge annoyance to have to sit there, wait in a waiting room, you know, this and that. Um, obviously, uh, if there's a, and companies have acted, by the way, on this. Did you know that they're huge companies, they actually have like a kiosk in their building, hmm. private, of course, yeah. to protect privacy, where it, they can see a doctor in the little thing through telemedicine. That's pretty cool, I think I've seen that, yeah. actually. Can you imagine? Yeah. I mean, it's very smart, uh, obviously, but some people may not feel as comfortable, but you want to know something? For routine visits, 
they keep their employees, you know, at work. They they keep them happy, engaged, healthy. Yeah. Because unhealthy employees don't help them. Obviously, it's in their interest. It's in the insurance company's interest and the doctor's interest to keep you healthy. So that's where I'll leave off. Value based reimbursement is going to rethink the way doctors make money based on being able to show that the quality of their care is actually improving the patient's life. We really appreciate you breaking down uh, for us, and there surely will be a part two. Uh, Michael Fischweiger from EMR Consultants, um, and we thank you for watching, and you know, hopefully we're going to be pushing out more content uh, you know, soon enough, and you know, we'll, we'll see you on the next one. Thanks. Peace. Peace. Can't forget the <laughs> peace. <laughs> awesome.